Black History Always, the podcast. Welcome to Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates from The Undefeated. The Olympics and one of the places where there is a lot of controversy is in the pool. So joining us to talk about that is Candace Cooper. I will let her describe her bona fides in a second, but just know she's an expert on the matter. Hello, Candace. Clinton, thanks so much for having me. I am super excited to get this opportunity to discuss all things swimming. It's a rare treat for me, but uh, I'm really appreciative of this opportunity. Well, let's start here. Tell us who you are, where you come from, and basically what your background is as a swimmer in general, never mind what you've done from a groundbreaking standpoint later. Sure. So born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, took the opportunity to uh, swim from eight years old until 26, actually. And I started at just the Y, basic Y swimming, just trying to get, you know, the bands to be able to swim in the deep end. And I ended up looking at girls from across the way from me. And I was like, mom, like, I think I want to try to go back, you know, up and down the pool. And so she took me to a swim meet and I, you know, swam for the Y team. And my first race ever, my parents were like, I don't know, this is it. <laughs> like I literally almost drowned. Like they walked on the side of the pool the entire way. No, right. no, no BS. So they walked the entire way and they were like, I just, okay, I'm glad she likes it. So we'll keep it rolling. Um, and then I uh, swam in high school, swam at a private school, started like seventh grade, swimming on varsity teams, kind of just took to it. It's kind of like, you know, nowadays when you start to see that potential, you kind of have to pick a sport, right? You can't just do that multi-sport thing as, you know, we're probably used to seeing. So I stuck with swimming early mornings, you know, late afternoons, evenings, trying to battle school and figuring out where I was going to go to school, took several trips. Um, typical of like, you know, how they do football and basketball. Hold on and, there. Let me, let yeah. me, let me ask you something. For those who don't know what the swimming life schedule is like, please <laughs> explain what that is on an hour to hour basis. If you're really committed. Yeah. So in high school, it was three times a week. You would go six to seven thirty, six to eight, depending on when you had, when high school started for you and uh, go to school all day, typical eight to three, and then go to practice for about 3.30 to 5.30. And you would do that three times a week. Sometimes you would have the Tuesday, Thursdays where we would do hour and at least an hour of lifting before practice. And then Saturday mornings was our free for all coaches dump. So you'd probably be there from like eight to 11, eight to 10.30, go to IHOP afterwards and eat all of the pancakes your heart desires. After a long day of burning all those carbs and you sleep all day and you get Sunday to rest, go to church. You know, we live in the Bible Belt and then you start again on Monday. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the reason I say that is because swimming is one of those sports where you can't just show up and sort of show out. You know what I mean? You got to actually yeah. spend that time in the pool. No, swimming is one of the sports where you get everything in that you put out. It's money in the bank type, we used to say. And so you'll cash in at the end of it, but it will very much be honest with you. You cannot, you know, defeat that clock. It's going to be super honest and unforgiving at times. So you become a standout swimmer. You said you're from Raleigh. So what happens there in terms of the next step? Yeah. So I thought I was going to go to LSU. I thought I was going to go super far away. I took all my trips and, you know, the only school that pretty much hung out with people other than the swim team was Carolina. So I was like, oh, my whole, I grew up, you know, being an African-American swimmer where like swimming was cool, but I also had life outside of that. So I wanted to be around a team that understood like swimming is great. We're hardcore, you know, during those hours that we dedicate. But other than that, 
I want to hang out. Like I want to go spend time with other people. So I went to Carolina, went on my recruiting trip, literally had the time of my life, got in the car. And I was like, I have to go to Carolina mom. And I, that was the last place I wanted to go. I wanted to be far away, but you know, God saw different. So 30 minutes down the road, I was at Chapel Hill. It's been very wild four years <laughs> at that place. Uh, a lot of you learn politics very quickly in college sports in general, but uh, especially in swimming, that's still a very non-progressive sport. Uh, it was it was difficult, but at the same time, it definitely helped me in my career post and just in life in general. I grew up a lot in Carolina. The politics you speak of are very specific because you broke yeah. a very specific barrier. Did you know that was going to be the case going in? And if so, what was your mindset as far as how that was going to be from your life, not just as a swimmer, but again, off campus, as you stated, as you stated, that's important to you. Yeah. So funny story. So I was an African-American studies major at Carolina and one of our, my senior thesis was the plight of the black athlete. So I wanted to study like why athletes in politics and why we don't see, you know, athletes necessarily stepping up, especially at the the collegiate level, as we used to, we have this place called the Stone Center, the Sonia Haynes Stone Center. And we were, you know, back in the day, they protested to get that Stone Center in place at Carolina. And the fact that there were a lot of athletes involved doing sit-ins and one, like there's a whole documentary, you know, I went to the library, did all that research documentary on the athletes who were skipping practice in order to be a part of the sit-ins. They wanted to be a part of the movement, part of the change. And so I kind of just looked at, you know, how we are in the early 2000s, why we don't do that, talking to different players, talking to some, you know, really stars of the world, George Lynch from Carolina, Harrison Barnes, some of the football players and just asking like, why wouldn't you do that? And like, figuring out how scholarships play such a big deal. Coaches tell you not to get involved in things like that. And so in doing that, I researched, you know, the swimming part (laughs) and I reached out to our coach, Frank Comfort. And I asked him like, frankly, like, had there ever been black swimmers? Cause I was trying to interview as many people as possible. And he was like, well, we've had three guys, only one graduated, but you're the first woman. And so that's how I found out that I was the first black girl to swim. It wasn't like I knew going into, I would just happen to do a thesis and happen to want to do more interviews. He was like, nope, you're the first. (laughs) And so from there, it was like, oh, internalize. And that really has taken my life (laughs) on such a roller coaster for good and bad reasons. But it was a bullet point I never thought I would have on my resume, but I I, uh, use it (laughs) as much as I can. Wow. One second. I just don't want, I just don't want, I should send an email. Okay, there we go. No. Okay, so look, okay, you're not the first black person, but you are the first black woman, which Mm -hmm. almost in many ways becomes harder, not because of just the woman factor, obviously male privilege is the first privilege, but you're breaking a different barrier in a different space. When you learned that, what did you actually think? I wasn't surprised. Um, I think the way people feel like it's such a big deal makes me feel like sometimes I don't think of it as a big deal enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I'm i like, oh, yeah, I'm just the first black girl. But when you've been in the swimming world for so long and as long as I have, 
I've been the only black girl at swim meets. So that's nothing new to me. I've had to answer for the black community at so many swim meets, not knowing, you know, what I was, you know, talking about half the time. I've had to deal with so many stereotypes and like ignorant conversations that frankly, you know, looking back, woo, that was problematic, right? So I've done, I've dealt with all that, that it didn't bother me and it didn't affect me. But I think moving forward in, you know, my kind of career aspect, it was like, oh, damn, that actually is a big deal. It's a huge deal, especially at a, the first, the oldest public university, you know, in the country, that's something like super major. And it explains why, you know, going through all the politics of swimming and politics at Carolina, people who don't understand you are going to put, put you in a box, deal with you a certain way. And so that's kind of how that all played out and made more sense as I got older. Not to be too direct, but how good were you? That's a great question. Uh, (laughs) I'm super humble and that's really, that's hard for me to say, but if you think about, okay, making Olympic trials, I'll fast forward a bit. So I I graduated in 2012. I was so burnt out from the positive Carolina. I was like, I would never swim post-grad with this place. I didn't even want to go to trial. So I didn't go. 2012, I made trials when I was like, I'm done. So I sat back for a year and a half and then I really just started right back at the YMCA, <laughs> swimming on my own, like, all right, I'm gonna do 500 yards today. I'm gonna do a thousand. So I literally put, got myself back in shape, ended up training with NC State and swam with them for two and a half years for trial. So I competed in 2016 and only about 1800 people go to trials. And of those, I was like top 20 in my event. And so probably the fastest black girl just ever swim backstroke in that year, definitely. Um, so in respect, I swam next to the girl who ended up making the Olympic trials, who made the Olympic team. So, I mean, I was all right. I was, I was okay. You knew what you were doing (laughs) and that's why you're here. Candace Cooper joins us on Black History Always. The Undefeated, I'm Clinton Yates. Okay, so now let's get to the crux of the matter. I'm going to read you a headline. Mm -hmm. New York Times, how a ban on a swim cap galvanized black swimmers, deck, this is so much bigger than banning of a cap. That's what Leah Neal, a two-time Olympic medalist for the U.S., said. Number one, do you know her? Have you crossed her paths? And number two, how do you feel about that headline in her quote? Yeah, so Leah Neal, um, we've tried to get her at. My family has a swim meet called the National Black Heritage Swim Meet in Cary, North Carolina. We've had it for almost 20 years. And so we've tried to get her a couple times to come to our meet. We've ended up having Marissa McClendon, who was the first African-American female to ever make the Olympic team. Um, we've had Colin Jones at our meet. You know, she is a great swimmer, um, Leah was one of those where we just like root for because of, right? So she's in our community, in solidarity, all that good stuff. So I've never met her personally, but I, you know, swimming circle and that kind of air is different. So we're all of no of each other. Right. Well, I mean, oh, you talked about the politics. I'll get into the specifics, which is that FINA, the governing body for swimming, basically said, we're not going to accept a certain type of cap known mm-hmm. as the soul cap now. For those who don't know, what the sole cap does is it basically protects black hair. It's a larger cap. I don't know anything farther than that. You can explain (laughs) that in a second. But basically, you know, what Fina said was that the sole caps do not adhere to what they called, quote, the natural, what was this, what what did they say, the natural size of the head, Mm -hmm. which is blatantly offensive, obviously off the top natural is yeah. a completely Eurocentric term there, but just, just talk to me a little right. bit about that from a, from a specifics of a swim cap standpoint. 
Right. So soul cap definitely has that extra extension that allows for like locks to come in to, that allows for, you know, girls who wear afros maybe uh, to put their hair more comfortably. So to me, when I thought about when I have it all come out, you know, right, I see soul cap and I'm like, listen, at the end of the day, I would use that cap if I was going on a recreational swim, if I was teaching lessons, I don't know that I would compete in a cap of that size. But I definitely feel like the fact that Fina wasn't even to investigate and take the time to understand what the cap means to certain people, you know, trying to navigate that space was where, you know, it went extremely left. And so that's the problematic part for me. Um, I wasn't outraged by it, but I also definitely feel like what is the point of a ban? And like, that's the misguidance and the frustration. And that I definitely understand the people being upset about that regard. Did it remind you of anything else in terms of the, your career and your life in terms of just the sort of basic discrimination that black folks, never mind black women have to deal with from a competitive swimming element? I mean, as a black woman, you know, the shape of your body is different. Right. And so the cut of swimsuits is different. And so my, my, my bottom ate a lot of swimsuits <laughs> and I, you know, Nike cuts really small and that was Carolina suits. So like, the jokes about like, oh, Candace's suit can never like get out of her crack. It's just like, I know that's like funny, but at the same time, it's like, I didn't make this suit. This is what I have to deal with. And I've had coaches like who were like, oh, you need to change this or get three sizes bigger. And I'm like, I'm not blessed, you know, to be able to wear a three sizes bigger just to fit my rump. And so it's things like that. We've had girls who've been disqualified from races because of their suit and it cut too, too uh, low for officials. And so they're like, listen, because your cheeks were showing, you got disqualified. Like that's very much a real thing. And so I think it's just because people don't understand because it's different to them, they automatically go left and make it negative and put a ban and want to disqualify for things that are God given. Right. From an experience standpoint, how many girls have you seen get discouraged from deciding to go farther in their careers because of things exactly like that? I think people get discouraged, women get discouraged by swimming because of the hair. I think it's not even having to do with the way you can be in the sport. Um, of course, isolation, you're not, not having uh, that many black people in the sport definitely plays a factor, but for black women, it's always number one is the hair. Like nobody wants to swim because it takes maintenance. It's just like, I mean, having natural hair, it takes a routine. It takes the extra time. You're going to spend 20 extra minutes in the locker room because you have to condition your hair, not in the same way Katie has to condition her hair. So it's just like, it takes time that a lot of people don't want to experience. You, you think, oh, I just got my hair wet. It doesn't matter until that chlorine dries it out or breaks it off. Um, so that's probably the most discouraging part for, I think, women. But you know, I, I have seen girls who just simply don't like the isolation part as well, because it's hard. Like, it's hard to not be able to talk to other people. It's hard to, like, have to explain yourself or have to, you know, sit here and speak up for a community that's so not monolithic. So it gets tiring and you don't want to have to do that. And it's very exhausting. So I, I see why, you know, girls just kind of say, listen, after the high school level, I'm good. I want to go enjoy college and I want to just live my life. Let's rewind a little bit to something you said before. Your family holds a swim meet in North Carolina. Tell me a little bit yeah. about the culture of that, how that came about, and what that means yeah. to you. Yeah, so we used to go to Black History Meet in D.C. every February. And at one point, it was like traveling up there and being on buses and having the bus get stopped and, you know, break down. We were like, we should just have our own meet. And so we had a family friend who was like, let's just do our own thing. So a group of us, we really just took it on um, to start our own Black Heritage Meet. 
And it started with 100 kids. <laughs> and it literally was just an opportunity to get faces that look like each other in the pool, swimming fast and having fun. So it's essentially like a big old cookout hosted every year for Memorial Day weekend. We've started in this year's 18, you know, sans COVID. And it's about 1,000, 1,200 kids that come out and just have an opportunity to kick back, have a fish fry, like see their same people, they market on their calendars, you know, there are kids who literally market on their calendars, like for their school year. And they're like, I get to see, you know, my friends who live in Dallas, who live in California, and they all swim, they look like me and they swim, having parents who never knew much about the sport, who are now officials, volunteers, because they have an opportunity to learn more, and they take it with them, and kind of bring it back. So it really is just, you know, when you don't see it, <laughs> you make it and that's the, our story, really. What's the camaraderie level like there for you personally? I mean, how fulfilling is it? I mean, I think I cry like almost every year <laughs> and it's like super, it's just super cathartic. Like I just, it's different. You, you grow up wanting to just be like everybody else. And so seeing thousands of kids get that opportunity to race at a high level. And it's not like, oh, we're this basic kids, like seeing other kids race at a high level, getting to follow their careers, choosing certain universities because of that. A lot of people go to Howard now because of their swim program. We have Howard come down and recruit kids, you know, and just watch kids from, you know, NC State and Carolina getting to recruit and see certain people. It's, it's opened so many doors and like, it's taken on a life of its own that it get the gift gives itself, right? It doesn't, if I do nothing else in this world, having that swim meet would satisfy me all the same. Swimmers, black swimmers, their history in black America, never mind more largely in America is pretty unknown. You know, the, you don't, we don't think of swimmers as big time black athletes. Tell yeah. me a little bit about, let me start over. Who are some of the people that in your life have been those swimmers? You've named a couple already, but in the story history of black swimmers, names people need to know if they want to go and look things up and find out who these folks are on their own. Yeah, Tanika Jameson swam at the University of Texas. You got, you know, Blair Cross, who swam at the University of Maryland. Brittany Copeland swam at University of Houston. You have Marissa McClendon, who swam at Georgia. Natalie Hines, who swam at Florida, now swims for the Georgia Bulldogs Swim Club, just made her first Olympic team. You know, obviously, Simone Manuel, Cullen Jones, you know, guys, Sabir Muhammad. So many people <laughs> that have come, you know, before us kind of paved the way. And Leah Neal, like I mentioned, we're all just this big family because we get it. We've all had those stories. It's a place where we can have those honest conversations. So it really is a built-in family. And you recognize that just because you don't know somebody, people know you, right? And I had I didn't make the Olympic team, but like people still know, they still follow your career because they don't get to see it often. And so it's really been a journey to kind of see that next group coming up um, and really root for them because at the end of the day, it really is that saying we all we got, like that is so true in this sport. We're talking with Candace Cooper, who is the first black female swimmer at the university at the University of North Carolina. And the reason I say that is because that institution is a very important one that's been in the news recently. If you've been living under a rock and don't know who Nicole Hannah Jones is, well, she is the author of the 1619 Project, which tells the story of the history of slavery in this country from a standpoint that a lot of people don't necessarily like. Now, this is important for two reasons. Number one, you matriculated there. Number two, what was your major, Candace? I was African-American studies major. Yeah, it's it's tough because, you know, 
Carolina went through that scandal when they had the whole quote unquote fake classes. So I've heard, I've heard it all, right. I've heard my, you know, degree isn't legit. I've heard all the stories of people asking like, did I take fake classes? So I've gotten a lot of, of the scrutiny that comes with Carolina and for good and bad, they deserve a little bit of it. To, to rewind the fake, the scandal that you're referring to with fake classes was that for an 18 year period at the university of North Carolina, the African-American studies program was using what were known as paper classes, where basically you didn't have to show up, you didn't really have to do anything, and you were granted a grade. It was ostensibly used for athletes as a way to keep them eligible, but in my personal opinion, it also more scholastically devalued the concept of what African American studies are because of the way people looked at that department and that program. During that scandal, how did you feel about what you were doing as a black person, never mind as a student? Yeah, listen, I think at the end of the day, I took really great classes. I learned a lot about myself, about my history, and I would have never known my own personal fact had I not, you know, been in that department. So I'm forever grateful for the professors who went on the path of legitimacy, who tried to make this program what it really is and could be. But, you know, I do understand that it's un- it's honestly unfortunate because I think it was happening at way more departments than, you know, but of course, African-American studies kind of stuck out and it's the easy one. It's the low hanging fruit for people to go with and talk crap about. But I can't sit here and say my GPA is reflective of any paper classes. <laughs> you know, I think with athletes, it wasn't every athlete. I really appreciate my academic advisor who made a point to take me out of classes that were, you know, had some funny business going on. And she really, you know, is my strength. Shout out to Jen doing all those good things. So we still talk to this day. <laughs> She's my girl. She made sure that I was on the right path and didn't just take the easy way out. Nice. We love to hear that. More generally, though, you're not just a you were not just a swimmer at more than one North Carolina institution. You're from North Carolina. You know, how did the situation that unfolded with the tenure matter with Nicole Hannah Jones just make you feel as a resident of that state? Never mind somebody who matriculated at, at said school. Listen, it's very much secondhand embarrassment and I don't get embarrassed easily. It's so disappointing, right? As a woman, as a black woman, as someone who loves education and thinks that's such a powerful tool. It's so disappointing to know that we won't have someone of her stature teaching the next generation, right? Like only because of sheer ignorance. And I understand why, you know, people are always going to be up in arms about something, but if you're not willing to have the conversation, if you're not willing to even bring someone in, well, overqualified, like, like <laughs> not even someone who had to be like, oh, maybe not. Nah overqualified. That's the story of our life. That's what pissed me off the most. Cause it's like, what does it take? You can't keep, you can't keep moving the goalposts every time we accomplish something and be like, still not good enough. And I think that was the most disheartening because especially being in this state, you're just like, when am I ever going to get that recognition? When are my peers? When are people who are my colleagues? When are people who have done way more work than I'll ever do going to get that recognition they deserve? Swinging back to the Olympics. And this is the last thing I'll ask you, but it's a two part question. Number one, Do you think FINA will ever reconsider this, not necessarily for this games or Olympiad, but just in general from all of the backlash that we've heard and all of this sort of very real conversation around this, even if you want to call it controversy, but has been healthy. And number two, who are you looking forward to seeing in this Olympics from in the pool? Never mind black folks, just in general, as a fan of the of the of the sport that you you participated in. Yeah, so I think that 
it's already reconsidering it from what I've heard. They kind of all the uproar has caused that, which good. Like, I think it's worth having conversations. And if you say you don't understand, instead of just blatant banning, you should always take the time to want to listen to others and see why this is so important to have a cap like this just for consideration. And so I hope, you know, they come to some sort of resolution and they allow for it. Um, I think at the end of the day, you should be able to wear any cap you want to wear and win gold however you want to win gold. And speaking of gold, I want Simone Manuel to win 50 meter freestyle. I want Natalie Hines to win a gold on her four by 100 relay. Um, Olivia Smaliga is on that relay as well. Katie Ledecky is awesome. Um, she's done some something great for the sport. Reagan Smith, really extraordinary, extraordinary backstroker. Um, the girl's like, I don't know, 17, still doing the damn thing. We have a girl from uh, North Carolina. I think her name is Kara Carzone, and she is actually from Raleigh. So excited to see her. And I think it just having that sense of normalcy back in terms of the games, I praying for everyone's health and safety. Cause listen, <laughs> COVID is not a game. I don't take COVID as a game. And I feel for people who, you know, trying to make the Olympic team is hard enough, right? Trying to then going to the Olympics and performing is hard enough. Then you add something on top of like your health and safety. And that I just, the mental toughness that I feel like these athletes have right now beyond because you're just you're asking them to do extraordinary things already you know at the gate from just being who they are in a normal setting but on top of trying to just be through a pandemic it's it's incredible candace cooper thank you for joining us of course thank you for having me black history always a podcast Black History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. You know, not all slights are microaggressions, though. In some cases, they're overt and unavoidable. Take a trip with me to the heartland of the Midwest, where baseball, just like apple pie, is still very American. In 2021, the way we communicate with athletes has undeniably changed. The things we say, the stuff we write, the actions we carry out. And while in the past year, in the NBA specifically, we've seen some pretty ugly incidents, Russell Westbrook wearing a box of popcorn comes to mind. There's a discussion to be had about what we're doing overall. Last week, some dork threw a baseball at the Red Sox' Alex Verdugo in Yankee Stadium in the middle of a ball game. Call it gamesmanship at best, simple assault at worst, it was an indication of just how far this problem has come. Off of a pandemic, yes, people are willing to give the stars of the show their best, even if it crosses an obvious line. That fan in the Bronx is now banned, not just from watching the pinstripers in person ever again for life, but he's banned from every MLB ballpark until forever. Stupid games, stupid prizes, etc. It's a real problem. Last month, I attended a baseball tournament. Thousands of people were there every night. With all the lights on, some of the best players in America took to the diamond to pursue their dreams of victory. One particular team there had a brigade of fans like none the venue had ever seen. Literally. They were loud and proud the entire week, showing up in every part of town you could imagine, preaching their gospel about their fan base. Cool. Good times. Yeah, you know. Then, well, things took a turn. After one game that happened to feature a bunch of black kids beating the brakes off of a team with just one brother on their own squad, things got feisty. A bunch of fans started yelling racial epithets at the players' parents during the game, a scene that was entirely in the cards for those of us who were on the ground there to see it. Hey, I hope he earned his scholarship this season. 
Well, said kid dropped down a bunt, confusing the pitcher and the first baseman, leading to a base hit. A brilliant play, mind you. And at that point of the game, the governor came off. The end bomb started flying. And next thing you knew, we had an incident on our hands. Both sides of the story chimed in. I am deeply troubled that some of our student athlete parents were subjected to racial slurs during last night's game. This is absolutely unacceptable and disgraceful behavior. And such hateful language has no place anywhere in our society. To the family members who were impacted, please know that you have my full support. The next day, after reporting that news, I went on the Paul Feinbaum show here on our networks to explain what happened. The hate mail flowed in, but in a different way than usual. People didn't believe me. They not only didn't want to believe me, plenty of folks thought I was outright lying to somehow upset the apple cart that was their team's momentum and winning a coveted title. Okay, here's one from a guy who goes by Dusty Florida. Let's hear the audio. I think you're lying for attention. Everyone records everything, so there has to be audio or video somewhere. Let's see it. All right, cool guy. The one thing the fan base is not is racist. There may be a crazy idiot who does not speak for us, but it is unacceptable if it happened. You are a liar and are just making things up that are not true. You didn't see or hear any of that happen personally. You are a race baiter, and all you care about is the publicity that this lie has brought you. Thanks, Vincent. Anyway, you get the idea. Then game two happened. In game two, the roles were reversed on the ball field. The newly established home team dominated, evening the series. And in that game, in the fifth inning, well, take a listen for yourself. Time to thank catcher, buddy! Every back in the night! Every back Listen again. After making fun of the ball player's name from a nearby section while he was on base, a second voice calls him, addresses him no less, as a slave. Hey, slave. Actual words said by a human being at clearly loud volume in front of an audience of thirsty fans. To be clear, this isn't about the player being a victim. It's about his vulnerability as a target. Just like so many other athletes, here you are trying to play a game to entertain the public, dedicating your life to it, even if you are on the team they're rooting against, and you got to deal with that. Just the tone of voice was enough to let me know what was going on, and it was completely unsurprising. This recording was made available to us by a person of color, a fan who was sitting literally right next to the jackasses screaming those gross words. What does it take to call someone a slave? As black folks, yo, we deal with a lot. There are multiple levels of racism. There's the, oh, you're so well-spoken variety. The, you're not really like them variant. There's also the, if I talk to you, you better respond type. Never mind the, we will not be moving out of your way on the sidewalk category as well. More explicitly though, there are those that yell epithets and N-bombs. But to call somebody a slave in 2021? In this economy? Disgusting. The player heard it, and his family and the team have since moved on. The guy who heard it firsthand, well, he left that game. The rest of the vitriol was that bad, and he was that shook. But think about what's being said there. Not your garden variety slur designed to get under skin and rattle you, but a real-life attempt at reaffirming the roles of forced bondage as a matter of intimidation. 
And this wasn't even the first time for that team in that series as stated. It's another reminder that no matter where we go or what we do or how hard we try, there's always and often a person willing to tell us to stay in our place. In decades past, it's entirely possible that such a scene could have played out and the descriptions of the characters could have been true. Alas, because of how far we've come together as humans, this was ultimately just a grotesque display of free speech. The blame game isn't a part of this story. If you were in Section 120 that day, you heard it. There's no way around it. But more importantly, if you live in this country and have attended a sporting event anywhere, you've probably heard the same or worse. It's not fair game. It's not part of growing up. It's not a thing, except an ugly one. Mans didn't even have to use that word and somehow managed to make his message even more harmful. Oh, lastly, this wasn't just some travel ball tournament that happens a thousand times at a thousand weekends at a thousand ball fields across America. It happened at the College World Series. And the player targeted was the SEC Freshman of the Year. Big stage, big wrong, big yikes. Black History Always, the podcast. You spoke to us. Now we'll speak to you. Here's Talk Back. All right. We asked y'all to talk to me, and I said I'd talk back. So, first question. Let's get it. This comes from a Twitter listener named Britt Robotista. It's a bit of a mouthful, but what up, Britt? Thank you for the question. The question is, what are your thoughts about TJ Ward's, in my opinion, awful comments towards Ron Rivera on Twitter? Now, to review exactly what happened in the situation, TJ Ward is a football player in the league, and the deal is this. Ron Rivera is the head football coach of the Washington football team. Not a lot of that team is vaccinated. Mind you, Ron Rivera, a cancer survivor, brought in all sorts of experts, all kinds of people to talk to his team, to explain to them the point and the purpose and the imperative of getting vaccinated in this country during a time of pandemic. And still, the numbers are incredibly low regarding that particular team. A story from Gridiron Report says Ron Rivera says he's, quote, beyond frustrated that so many Washington players are unvaccinated. I, I am. I'm, I'm truly frustrated. I, I, I'm, I'm beyond frustrated, you know, uh, and part of it is and the reason I walked in with the mask on is, you know, I'm I'm immune deficient. OK, so with this new variant, who knows? So when I'm in a group and, and, and the group's not vaccinated or there's mixture, I put the mask on um, and I do that, you know, for health reasons, because uh, nobody really knows. And so I'm, you know, I, I, I have to do that. And I just wish and I hope that our guys can understand that. Now, here comes TJ Ward, who apparently has thoughts on this matter. Boss Ward 43 is his Twitter handle. Quote, just park the riverboat. His health is beyond that of COVID. Maybe it's time to let it go. Following that up with, don't blame the players for your lifelong health decisions. And just to make the point, even farther stupid at some point you got to pay for them vices cancer runs in my family like many american families but also bad diets and cigarettes as well accept responsibility don't blame and don't be disappointed in your 23 year olds because they have their own bodies and opinions about their health now this is an extremely weird path of logic never mind profoundly stupid 
way to go about talking to anybody. Look, Ron Rivera did not get cancer because he was smoking and overweight. Number one. Number two, even if that were the case, that has nothing to do with how COVID-19 spreads in this country. This is a staggeringly, staggeringly wild thing for somebody to be saying in public, in my opinion. Like, the NFL is cracking down on this. They're fining players for not wanting to wear um, devices around, you know, the practice facilities so that they can be traced. They're definitely finding players who are not getting vaccinated, and they're basically saying, you can't play in this league if you don't get vaccinated. Now, look, I'm not here to have a whole conversation about what goes on regarding pandemics. It's pretty simple. If you get the shot, you're less likely to get sick and die. Of course, you can still transmit it. We've seen many famous cases of that. But in the case of the NFL, in which players are very vocal and very visible, to have one particular team that particular team be so bullheaded about what is obviously a public health concern is amazing to me and by amazing i mean like i am legitimately amazed that that's still where we are in july 2021 regarding what is happening on earth regarding protocols like yo if you play in a league in which there are tons of people and they plan on having a lot of people in stadiums it would behoove you to find a way to make sure that you are not a part of the problem and you are part of the solution. I mean, this is obvious to me. Like, look, I've been through a lot of situations with this in terms of covering tournaments. I know a lot of people have had to sit, to sit situations out. Players, media, all sorts of folks. I remember being on Around the Horn last year in February, trying to remind folks that, hey, this could turn big. It's been more than big. The NFL's got a real problem on their hands. They think that this is going to be what flies with players on social media, while at the same time, they're trying to deal with stuff on the field and in their stadiums and their practice facilities that is legitimately life-threatening. If immunocompromised coaches can't even convince their own players that it's worth trying to help for the larger cause, ooh, bro, got a long way to go in that league. Our second question comes from a listener whose name I'm not going to read because I don't like them, but that's fine. Their question is this. Regarding the Cleveland Guardians' new name, what exactly is your problem with it? Or meaning me? Well, look, okay, here's the deal. Cleveland's baseball team for a long time was known as a word I'm not going to use. It starts with an I. The Native American populations of this country have been talking about how mascots and representation and everything in between matters and how it affects populations. And they've been trying to educate folks on this matter forever, particularly in my hometown, Washington, D.C., with the football team who we just referred to, Separate Matter. That's been a big deal. They actually changed their name. And you know what they did when they changed their name? They actually pointed out that the previous name was a problem for a reason. Well, the Cleveland baseball team didn't decide they wanted to do that. They're slow footing their rollout. They said a year ago they changed it in two years, which I never really understood why they couldn't just change it right now anyway. But it was a real story because a lot of people believed that Major League Baseball was going to yank the All-Star game from them if they didn't do it. Now, mind you, there's a lot of mouth breathing people in Cleveland that would dress up in red face very recently and still go to the park. I was there two years ago for the MLB All-Star Game, which was a tremendous event. 
I wrote a column at the Undefeated about how Cleveland actually, actually showed out for that in a way that I found respectful and kind. I was a little worried that what we're going to have were a bunch of folks out there protesting that they never wanted the name to go away and Chief Wahoo should have never been a problem to begin with. Well, it took a couple years, but as soon as the name changed, these people showed up again. Why is Guardians... Why am I not a fan of Guardians? It's pretty simple. It sounds too much like the old name. If the whole point of rebranding your identity is that you want to get away from something that we consider to be an actual problem in just using the name... Well, changing to a name that sounds just like it, and quite frankly, using the culturally awkward font that symbolizes what that meant for the exact same new logo, bro, that's lazy, man. And never mind the fact that Guardians is a lame name. Thirdly, they didn't even address the matter whatsoever in their rollout, which to me indicated that this is a little disingenuous. It very much gave off corporate boardroom vibes. It didn't have anything to do with really Cleveland outside of the fact that, oh, right, there's a bridge there with some statues on it. Come on, y'all. Spiders, number one, was right there. If you don't know your history, you can look that up, and perhaps we'll get to that at another date or another episode. But that name is great. That team went from possibly having the best name in all of the four pro major sports, as far as I'm concerned, to the worst. Lazy and lame. No bueno, Cleveland. And lastly, we'll end on a better note from a man, Phil Spain, on Twitter, a.k.a. at Phil en Español. He wrote to me and he said, At the end of the day, mental health will rule supreme over all. Too many people live by the, quote, hustle hard or else mantra. And if the last year has taught us anything, it's just how burned out we all are. Celebrities and people in sports are no different. Thank you for that comment, Phil, because that's exactly right. The bottom line is, is that as we move into this next phase or whatever it is we're doing on Earth, folks, we got to keep our heads up. There is no point in being out here moving about the cabin freely if folks are miserable all the time trying to attain goals that have nothing to do with who they are as people and are simply making the wheels turn. We all got to get a buck. I understand that folks got bills to pay and not everybody's in the same situation. But if you, listening right now, feel that whatever it is in your life is overwhelming, do not be afraid to say something to somebody else. My buddy Tony Reale, who hosts Around the Horn, he says this all the time. Mental health is health. And what Simone Biles did in Tokyo for the Olympics, stepping away because she didn't feel that she was right in the head, not only did that probably save the competition, perhaps, for the U.S., it could have saved her life. Today has been really stressful. We had a workout this morning. Um, it went okay. And then just that five and a half hour wait or something, I was just like shaking, could barely nap. I've just never felt like this going into a competition before. And I tried to go out here and have fun and warm up in the back, went a little bit better. But then once I came out here, I was like... No, mental is not there, so I just need to let the girls do it and focus on myself. If their heads aren't there and they're doing all those dangerous flips, something goes wrong. We're talking about potential paralysis if somebody breaks a neck or, God forbid, something worse. Simone Biles made the right decision. And all these bird brains on the internet who are out here insulting her and calling her weak or finding reasons to poke holes in what it is her strength could be or could not be, well, they're wrong. Because Simone Biles is the greatest athlete of all time. Pretty simple. I'm Clint Yates. We'll see y'all next week, kiddos. Thanks for listening to Black History Always. Thanks for listening to Black History Always. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcast.